Please sit comfortably. The title of today's talk is Cultivating Ethical Intelligence. Um, this year in the Sydney group I've been um, emphasising the precepts in the teaching quite a lot because I think it's a part of Zen practice which is um, uh, not talked about enough and I think it's important to see the place, the important place that it has in an integral whole kind of practice within Zen training. I was saying at the end of our last session in Stroud that if you practice mindful meditation, um, you've got a third of a practice. If you practice mindful meditation and the precepts, you've got two-thirds of a practice. And if you use those, if you practice those, those two things side by side, um, meditation, zazen, and precepts in your everyday life, you cultivate the third aspect, which is insight. And insight is basically um, seeing and recognising and experiencing the interconnectedness of everything in life, that there's no separation anywhere, and, and the transience of life, the momentariness of life. And we can un- start to understand that intellectually, and then as we practice all of these three, three things together, um, eventually we, we start to embody that experience ourselves. It's not just something in the head. And we act from that position. So in the Eightfold Noble Path, the, these are the three aspects that make it all up. Cultivating insight, meditation, precepts. So if we want a, a whole practice, um, that's what's required. If you do one of them, that's fine. There'll be a benefit from doing it. But if you really want the whole practice, then it's the synergy of all these things coming together that make the practice. So just to acquaint you with um, the precepts again, just so we remind ourselves of them again, and then we'll discuss them. Um, And these are taken from um, the San Francisco Zen Centre. The first is not to kill, but rather to cultivate and encourage life. Now it's interesting the words they use here, encourage and cultivate. Um, I, I take that to mean cultivate is culti- cultivating that, that behaviour and, and, um, and spirit in oneself. But encouraging seems to imply um, encouraging others around you to act accordingly as well. Now this is a tricky thing because you don't want to be <coughs> self-righteous. You know, um, and often the best way of doing this is by example. Um, but it's, encar- it's it goes beyond self to context and environment. The second one is not taking what is not given, but rather cultivating and encouraging generosity. Three, not misusing sex, but cultivating and encouraging honest and caring relationships. Four, not lying, but rather encouraging and cultivating truthful communication. Five, not intoxicating self or others, but cultivating and encouraging clarity. Six, 
um, can't read my own writing here, um, not slandering, but encouraging respectful speech. Number seven, not praising oneself at the expense of others, but encouraging and cultivating self and other to abide in awakened nature. Number eight, not being possessive, but encouraging mutual support. Nine, not harbouring ill will, but rather encouraging kindness and understanding. And ten, um, not abusing the three treasures. Uh, the three treasures are Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Not abusing the three treasures, but encouraging awakening, the path of awakening and the community that takes refuge in awakening. So they are the, they are the in precepts. And um, the way um, many people in Sydney work with me with those is what we do. They, they come in and they tell me, oh, yeah, I want to work on that. I want to integrate that into my practice. And uh, so what we do is that they choose one particular precept and they work on it for a month. And so they have it pinned on their fridge or on their, wherever they are. They keep reminding themselves of it. And it's like they're focused on how that precept is working or not working through their daily life. And you may, you may journal it, you know, and acknowledge, yeah, I, I, I acted according to that precept there and I fudged it over there uh-huh, and I forgot about it over there or I was too scared to act on it there. Um, and it's by taking them one by one and really working with them for a whole month, you start to really absorb it into, into your being. And it's good to memorise them all too, you know, and you can, you can bring them to mind fairly quickly when you're certain situations go, yeah, this, remember, um, I'm not slandering in situations like this, whatever it might be, not harbouring anger in situations like this. They, they're, they're at the tip, you know, and you can bring them to mind very, very quickly. So memorising is a, a good thing to do. Now, when we, um, when we uh, learn about the precepts in Zen training, as an ethical system, it's looked at from three different levels. And those three different levels are that you look at them literally, like don't harm, you know, don't lie, etc. Don't harbour anger in its very literal sense. And then the second tier, the second level, is to practice those precepts um, from the point of view of compassion, you know, so that it's based on um, a sense of empathy, you know, is what motivates us to act from these positions. And then the third one is um, looking at the precepts from the point of view of emptiness. Now, this is one which bamboozles people a lot and can be misused and misread. Um, But looking at it from the point of view of emptiness is that there is no good or bad. There's no right or wrong, but thinking makes it so. In other words, life is just what it is um, before we project our ideas of what is right and wrong onto it. Just that life as it is, suchness, you know, and they may be terrible things, 
um, from a human being's point of view, but they're just life as it is. Now, in looking at these more closely recently, um, I looked at them in terms of the, um, the psychology and the emotions which are connected with um, ethical behaviour. And if we start with that literal view, um, just don't lie, don't, don't slander, don't harbour anger and so on, um, when we look at the psychology of morality in human beings, uh, what, what researchers are looking at and coming to a consensus on is one of the significant emotions which um, is behind um, driving moral behaviour in human beings is the emotion of disgust. Now, um, disgust is a very primitive emotion which all human beings have and it's an olfactory you know, um, uh, experience. It's to do with smell and, and, and taste primarily in all animals. So all animals have a sense of disgust um, because they want to be able to, to smell and taste whether what they're going to eat is going to be good and wholesome for them or whether it might kill them, you know, or make them sick. You know, like to see your dog sniff a bone before he eats it. So it's a very primitive emotion. And as the theory goes, is that um, in human beings, this basic um, sense of disgust is then made more sophisticated and broadened into a human context so that we, we act morally or not because we'll have a sense of disgust about certain kind of behaviours. So to, to give examples, you know, if we, we hear about um, sexual abuse of children or incest, things like that, it can bring up a sense of moral disgust about it. Um, and, and, uh, and that drives our own behaviour, you know, or uh, leads to us taking action in a, in a broader community. Um, an important um, landmark um, essay that was written on this, the title of it says it all, but the title of the essay was From Oral to Moral. Mm -hmm. So that oral, that basic oral kind of experience of disgust, and then in human beings it's broadened to the moral world. The other emotion which is very much involved with human morality and ethics is, are the, the, the emotions of guilt and shame um, and are emotions which can be often be very um, misunderstood, I think, through pop psychology. Um, people often think that guilt or shame are just simply negative, destructive emotions that have no evolutionary purpose at all. But usually if we have emotions, they're there for a reason. And, and shame is there as an emotion um, so that we maintain cohesion in a tribe or a family so that we don't disrupt the rules of the group and then put the group in jeopardy or disharmony. And, um, but the problem is, particularly in our culture and what you see in psychotherapy so much, is people who have excessive shame an excessive guilt and it's either directed in on themselves in a very toxic kind of way. It's a difference between um, 
I made a mistake and then generalising to that, well, therefore I am a mistake, right, rather than being able to just focus on the particular thing that happened. Um, but there's a tendency in our culture to see these things as negatives and that all shame and all guilt is bad. But within various religious contexts, including Buddhism, um, a sense of remorse, if I can put it that way, to use a, another word, healthy shame or remorse, was a highly valued characteristic in a monk in the Buddha's days. That sensitivity that if you intentionally or accidentally hurt someone, you go, oh, you know, I'm so sorry that I did that, and you feel badly about it. That was seen as being a good characteristic of a monk. And in our own way of looking at it in our modern world, um, a psychopath or a sociopath is someone who doesn't experience remorse. Mm -hmm. That's one of the characteristics of them, a kind of shameless. So to have no shame in that sense is not necessarily a healthy thing to have. What is healthy is distinguishing between healthy shame and toxic shame, you know, or to use that word, remorse, um, and, and, uh, and toxic shame, or remorse and guilt, and, and unhealthy guilt. So shame becomes another emotion which shapes our ethical behaviour in the world. And I'd imagine anger is in there somewhere as well, because um, disgust and shame can give rise to anger. So at this literal level, at this sort of more primitive level, these are the emotions that are often driving our, our ethical choices in life. Um, however, when you come to the next level of um, ethics being um, motivated by compassion, in a sense, compassion is a higher order motivation. It's like a higher emotion. Um, you need those other negative emotions. But if, you, if your behaviour was driven just by trying to avoid the unpleasant experience of disgust and shame, it's kind of at a surface level. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like just trying to avoid something unpleasant occurring as a consequence inside of us. Once we shift to actually um, being motivated by compassion, it is a higher order kind of... Um, motivation because it's just based on um, fellow feeling with other sensitive beings, you know, that sense of empathy that underlies our interbeing with others and interconnectedness. So interconnectedness is now seeping in as a positive kind of emotion that, that, that motivates our, our behaviour not to harm, you know, but to actually cultivate life in some kind of way. Then to come to the emptiness view that there is life is just as it is and there's no right or wrong until human beings project their ideas on it and so on, um, what does that cultivate? Um, I think it cultivates equanimity. Is this sense that, you know, to put it in a, in a cruder way, is that shit happens. You know, bad things happen to good people. Frequently, um, random things happen, you know, that may cause harm. 
and we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But if we just if our ethical behaviour is just driven by emotion, whether it's the negative ones or the positive ones, where do we find the equanimity in life? It's that third tier, you know, of seeing that just life is what it is. And um, a child gets hit by a car and dies. You know, it might be a negligent driver. Yes, we can look at all the different legal and ethical ways of looking at it. But also, one way of looking at it is it just happened. Just that occurred. Just like the branch falls off the tree. Mm -hmm. It just happens. The problem is, um, if we look at morality only through that lens, it becomes unhinged. And um, many people have commented, particularly um, um, Robert Aiken, who is a um, second, a first-generation American teacher and a peace activist. But that's where Zen went off the rails with the samurai tradition in Japan. And you see in the text, you know, there's, you know, the sword that doesn't kill. There's no one being killed, and no head rolling off, and everything's empty. Mm -hmm. But there's a dead body on the ground, and there's the weeping daughter or wife or whatever. Um, if we if we look at at ethics through only one of these different lenses, it's, it's limited. And so looking at things through the, the empty perspective needs to be also connected with looking at it through the compassion lens and it needs to be looked at looking at it through the remorse lens as well. You bring all those things into synergy together and you've got a, an ethical system, I think, which is much more nuanced and much more intelligent than just one of the components. So that is the, that is the Zen um, uh, system of trying to understand and using ethics intelligently in our life. I've just added the, the emotional component into it to give it a, put a bit more um, meat on the bone. One of the things that Joko, my teacher, warned about um, practicing the precepts, and you'll see it in her um, introduction to Diane Rosetto's book, which we often use as a text, Waking Up to What You Do, um, is that she was concerned that, um, and other Zen teachers have been concerned too, that if people um, take on learning the precepts without any other aspects of Zen practice, it can lead to a kind of rigid perfectionism, idealism and a, and a kind of a false self that people are trying to live up to. Um, and uh, a lot of Zen teachers, including, including Joko, um, uh, encourage precept training more towards the end of training rather than the beginning. Um, that wasn't Robert Aitken's view, and it's where I disagree with Joko in some way. I think it's very important that we can take on um, the precepts at the beginning of practice or near the beginning of practice and do it together with Sazen. And if we fall into the mistake of um, creating a false self out of idealism, then we then we look at that and we examine it. That's part of the that's part of the journey. Mm. Um, 
but it's about creating a fuller practice. Imagine if you do meditation and you're just interested in doing meditation and then you're in your workplace and then you're in the staff room and people are gossiping, two people are gossiping about someone else and you know paying them out or whatever. What do you do as a Zen student? Mm -hmm. If you're only guided by meditation, well you might you might sort of witness it, but how does it guide your behaviour, what to do or not to do? See, if you're practicing the precepts, you wouldn't join in. You may not necessarily comment on the process, but by not joining in and taking a kind of a stance which is not um, enabling it in some kind of way, will be an example of practicing the precepts. See, if you if you just were to meditate without that kind of moral compass, then you just get caught up in um, agitation and dissatisfaction and anger, etc., in your everyday life, and then you go and meditate to calm down. Mm -hmm. um, but if actually practicing the precepts, you bring in that connectedness and that that intelligence into every aspect of your life, not just when you when you see it as a way of calming. Another way of um, guiding us through life in terms of the way we apply these precepts too. See, you can think of it in terms of cultivating your own integrity, which is an you know, extremely important part of it. Um, but you can also, and so, but it's not just about becoming a nice person. If you take on the precepts, it actually takes a lot of courage to practice them, because it will mean that you will need to differentiate yourself from um, groupthink, you know, from group norms. You know, you're in a group where people are being um, racist or being sexist, and you don't, you don't join in, you know, have a neutral face, don't laugh, don't give it any oxygen, and people turn to you, what's wrong with you, don't you think it's funny, haven't you got a sense of humour? Mm -hmm. It takes courage to actually put this into action. It's not just about being a nice person. And I'll give you another example of it too. As someone said to me recently that um, um, his mother keeps, he's a Zen student, and his mother keeps asking him if he's going to church every Sunday. And he's not a Christian anymore and he doesn't go to church. And, and uh, when his mother, every time he asks, his mother asks him that question, he just um, changes the subject. It goes sideways somewhere. And we looked at it together and what the consequences of doing that are. And he, he came to his own decision after a while. Yep, yeah, I need to tell my mother the truth. You know, and it's, it's, it's going to hurt her. But by being evasive and so on, it creates a kind of hurt and disconnection between him and his mother anyway. But it's his decision. But he, when we talked about it, he said, yeah, actually, I've, I've got to tell her the truth. I don't go to church. And it's the way that he says it in a kind way will be important. But see, these are all examples how you take this on and it takes courage to do it. It's not just about being nice. Mm -hmm. Some principles that can guide us too in the way that we apply this in everyday life. Uh, Bernie Glassman Roshi, who I met very briefly in um, 
um, the Zen Centre of Los Angeles many years ago, went on to become a, a quite a well-recognised um, Zen teacher who developed um, the Zen Peacemakers um, Order. And it's worthwhile looking at what their three tenets are. They're very, very, very useful. They're three tenets that guide their principles in what they do. do uh, is one is not knowing. In other words, giving up fixed ideas about ourselves and the universe, not knowing. Bearing witness. Bearing witness to joy and bearing witness to suffering. And then compassionate action. Um, uh, the compassionate action that arises out of not knowing and bearing witness. They're, I think they're three really wonderful principles that we can apply and use as a way of implementing the precepts in our life, whether it's um, in political activism or whether it's just how you relate within your own family or how you relate to everyday events that occur around you. It doesn't have to be um, political activism. It can be anything. Mm -hmm. But it's actually applying it in your life. I think there are three very good principles. See, not knowing is maybe an antidote to acting in self-righteous kind of ways, you know, implying not being creative but applying sort of rigid ideas of right and wrong on other people and it's and it comes from a place of humility to not know and it's very very core aspect of Zen practice to actually cultivate that don't know mind where anything's possible not fixed ideas and then bearing witness particularly bearing witness to suffering is not to turn away from that which is unpleasant. You know, not to turn away from that which makes us squirm in some kind of way, but to be mindful and, and look it in the eye and see it for what it is. So we don't do those two things. We have this don't know mind and we're willing to, to bear witness to suffering in the world, then that becomes the that becomes the um, the source to one to want to actually do something, to take some action. And compassionate action is different to empathy. Empathy is a feeling which allows us to experience the, the pain or the suffering that other people go through. When, when we're feeling empathy, we're actually feeling hurt ourselves in some way. Um, but compassion takes it a step further. It's not just about feeling but it's actually doing something to relieve that suffering, you know, reduce that suffering or to end that suffering. It takes it that one step further into action in life. And it's very different to being um, morally, just, just morally outraged. I find so many people I speak to, particularly around politics and social action and things that happen in their family life, um, have moral outrage but it's just like blowing up and venting and like doesn't go anywhere. Right? Um, but a lot of people seem to get stuck there all the time. It doesn't actually move beyond the outrage. Um, now, it might be a, an initial kind of reaction to have to things, but then if we're working, if we're putting our Zen practice in, into place, that might be an initial reaction. 
and then, but we don't stop there, you know, and feel good about, you know, being morally outraged and how virtuous we are. It's like, well, what? How do you use that energy in a constructive way? Is is then the, the task ahead? Um, recently, in one of my talks in Sydney, which um, Althea put into Zen Chat and then went out in the email, is that some of my simple words I said in Zazen, um, as words of encouragement, were sit in the place of no judgment and no blame. And then um, I got an email back from someone, and um, this person is very um, passionately and compassionately involved in saving wildlife. And he just came back from witnessing some wildlife who'd been harmed quite severely and came back and read my little um, note, sit in the place of no judgment and no blame, and he explained to me what happened. He said, could you please explain, because this doesn't make sense to me right at the moment. And what I responded to him saying is that I can be involved, I had been involved in some political action as well at times, and I can understand his anger, you know, and his outrage about what occurred. What my challenge is, and what his challenge is, is to use that anger in a constructive way. You know, if we're just caught in harbouring anger and then we act out of that position in our action, then it'll just create more negative karma in the world. But that's perhaps the place often where we start. We do get angry. And, um, and that's what maybe if we didn't get angry, we wouldn't be motivated to do anything. But it's then, then the rest of your practice clicks in and then you start, you start to work towards much more wisely using how you can use that energy, and that, in his instance, to stop wildlife from being harmed. So that's how we, that's how we follow through with it. So it is an important part of practice. It's each person's choice how much they, they take out of Zen practice and how much they want to take away. But if you want a full practice, um, that's what it involves. It's meditation, regular meditation, embodying the precepts, um, not in a self-righteous way, but in a humble kind of way. And developing that insight into recognising the interconnectedness of everything. And once we're really embodied, once we really are grounded and embodied, not just intellectually, into, into recognising and experiencing interbeing, then we don't need to be so conscious about precepts because it becomes much more natural. It's kind of like the title of another talk I gave recently is that our altruistic instinct comes to the fore. And natural goodness comes to the fore because we just see the interconnectedness of everything. And that motivates us to act in a naturally harmonious kind of way. So that's what a full practice is. Thank you.